0: You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee.
1: Hello overcomers and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I am Runsi the founder of Overcome and today we are joined by a truly special guest an overcomer extraordinaire Dr. Anil Sood. So, Dr. Sood is the professor and vice chair for translational research at MD Anderson Cancer Center and regarded as one of the top global experts in the field of ovarian cancer. As a physician scientist, he's also our esteemed advisory board member. So, we have a lot to chat with Dr. Sood today about all his fascinating research that he's doing and with a focus, particular emphasis on the impact of stress on ovarian cancer progression, as well as his perspectives on treatment advances in ovarian cancer as a surgeon and a clinician. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Sood. And please, please, as I always say, share this information far and wide with anyone who may benefit and grab your coffee. I have mine and if you have your coffee, there, there he is, he has his, there you go. And look at him with the Connect Over Coffee background and the t-shirt that we love this, Dr. Scoot. Thank you so very much for making it fun as well as informative for us. So with that, a huge welcome to you to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always such an honor and pleasure to have you with us.
0: Well, thanks so much, Trunsi, and, and congratulations to you for uh, your 10th year anniversary. That's I really so give a lot of credit uh, for what you've accomplished in in a relatively short period of time and bringing this community together. uh, Really amazing
1: job. Thank you, Dr. Sood. Appreciate it very much. So I have a lot of questions for you, um, but um, before we delve into that, I wanted to personally, and on behalf of everyone that's listening, um, congratulate you on being recently elected to the National Academy of Medicine. What a what an honor. Uh, so um, congratulations, heartiest congratulations from all of us um, to you on that. And so you were elected for your groundbreaking work on the impact of chronic stress on the progression of ovarian cancer. Can you tell us uh, you know, a little bit about all this fascinating work that you have been doing and what have been the most remarkable findings of this work that our overcomers should know and be aware of?
0: Sure. And, and let, me, let me first start that. Uh, and I thank you for, uh, for uh, uh, the, the well wishes around the National Academy. You know, the first thought that comes to mind when I hear that, though, is that, you know, how fortunate I've been to work with the collaborators and with the, uh, with the lab members that I have and the, you know, many people around us and, and learn from our patients. Uh, and I really just want to mention that that uh, I, I feel really fortunate to have had uh, so many uh, such experiences over over my lifetime. You know, uh, the work around chronic stress for me goes back uh, at this point to uh, over 24 years, um, and it's hard to believe that that uh, that we've been in this area. And I I just want to tell you the the story behind this a bit, and and then I'll uh, tell you well, you know what we've learned as well. So I was—I uh, I did my training, uh, fellowship training at the University of Iowa, and uh, started to interact with a uh, clinical psychologist, Susan Luckendorf, who to this date remains a, a very close collaborator. And um, it's not an area that I ever thought I would be working in. And, and this is the power of uh, engaging with people who are completely, who come from a completely different background or different discipline. And Susan brought together some perspectives that that were very different. Um, And uh, we started to talk about about how uh, stress biology could impact uh, cancer. And and the more we looked into it, the more fascinating and interesting it became. And in fact, our first experience together was actually um, uh, at the university where they would allow people from two different disciplines to spend a summer uh, doing uh, cross-disciplinary work. And historically that was for people, say somebody from a a literature background and somebody from economics, and they would get together and write a book or something like that. So Susan and I actually proposed that we would like to spend the summer uh, starting to generate some uh, data about how stress uh, could impact cancer and they had never had anybody uh, from a biomedical discipline um, uh, there, but they actually gave us some seed funding. They gave us about $10,000 to start some of this work, and that's what actually led to uh, some of our very initial work, and then just hugely expanded that from there. So, you know, to even Uh, just mentioned that, you know, the kind of seed funding that you've provided for uh, junior investigators or to start uh, some of the initial work, sometimes I I don't think people really fully understand the impact of how important that can be to really start into a new area or start someone's career and and so on can be incredibly impactful. And and so, you know, with Susan over the years, um, what we've learned is that, you know, first of all, when we talk about it with broad audiences, uh, sometimes people think, well, doesn't, isn't everybody stressed? And in, isn't that gonna just cause cancer and so on? And that's not really how it comes about. You know, Stress is actually very adaptive. So our day-to-day stressors um, are, you know, what would, we would call acute stressors. And those are normal, those are adaptive. Without it, we actually wouldn't be alive at all. So th- that's a normal part of our life. But just like with many things, if it becomes chronic, if it becomes sustained, then it becomes, uh, uh, where it can lead to disease processes and so on. And stress is actually a catch-all term. You know, over time, I learned that psychologists have actually very specific uh, terms that they refer to. Um, We lump it all together as chronic stress, but some of the examples of chronic stress would be, for example, long-term major distress um, or uh, where people are isolated and they don't have the same degree of social interaction, we know that social support, which is the extent of network around an individual, is the exact opposite of chronic stress, and that's an important buffer uh, to have. I and have so- a
1: question here, um, uh, Dr. Sud. When you say chronic stress, and it, you gave a really good example, so your- Persistent stress, right? So social stress. So COVID has been a persistent social stress for the last two years plus, ongoing. Would you call this a, um, a chronic stress by this point, or would you consider this as a as an everyday stress? How would you classify this?
0: So ultimately, stress is the perception of um, you know of how one. Uh, is affected by a given uh, event so you know covid um, say if someone has a lot of family around them and they interact like you and i are doing on on zoom and they are uh, they are very interactive but and they still are going about their work and so on they may have no effect from it compared to someone who's relatively isolated and the COVID-related restrictions further magnified that isolation, then that would lead to more of a stress-related biology in in that kind of an individual. So, you know, by in itself, it may or may not have uh, an effect on a person. It'll depend on, you know, many other circumstances. Moreover, you know, for, with something like this, there are also prior exposures or prior events that can shape how we're affected. Say, if someone had, um, technically, depression is not not what we would call stress, but we've learned that major depression, if it's long lasting, can trigger the biochemical events in someone's body that look a lot like exposure to chronic stress. So, say if somebody had. Uh, other events preceding COVID, then COVID simply magnified what they've been going through. Um, And in another group of people we think of as chronically stressed are caretakers of uh, individuals with major disease and cancer falls into that spectrum along with say, for example, spinal cord injury or, or other events. And, and so those are also things where actually caretakers are, are individuals who are chronically stressed in that setting. So it, it, it's complex because we're dealing with humans and, and it's really the perceptions that also shape what the downstream events um, and, and how they affect um, our health and disease. You know, uh, the other thing I'll mention is that there, there's been a lot already known around heart disease, gastrointestinal disease, um, and, and infectious diseases and so on. But until you know 25 some years ago for, for cancer, there wasn't that much known at all. And increasingly we're seeing more and more uh, investigators now work on cancer and stress, which is really good for the field.
1: So um, that was fascinating. So if you could break this down a little bit for us. So in terms of stress, and cancer, uh, it, breaking this down to cancer diagnosis versus cancer progression, right? So, what is the role of stress on ovarian cancer diagnosis or in the in the progression? Is it the same or is it different? Tell us about the impact how how stress impacts these two differently.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So, for diagnosis, we don't really have. It, you know, diagnosis, um, w- when I talk about it uh, in that context, if we think about um, a fundamental question, can stress cause cancer? We have no compelling data at all that that stress in itself can cause cancer. and And so we have to be careful, you know in that in that regard that you know, could stress put into motion events that could cause initiation, um, Possibly, but it's such a lengthy process in itself uh, that we don't really have any compelling data for that. So um, epidemiological studies, when they've tried to look at cancer diagnosis um, itself, those data are relatively weak. Um, And and partly, I think there's so many other influences that are environmentally or or, um, genetically and so on that are related to cancer causation and diagnosis. That, that to study the impact of stress, I, I think it's such a lengthy process, it becomes very difficult. Where the data are much more compelling are related to, uh, to the progression of cancer or the outcomes of patients, where the thought is that, that uh, chronic stress can accelerate uh, the course of cancer and may lead to uh, worse outcomes. And again, this is where definitions become important. So many investigators have looked at um, uh, patients with, for example, renal cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and so on. And, and those data um, seem to be relatively consistent that with chronic stress, there, is, um, there seems to be worse outcome uh, in that regard. Could there be confounds uh, in that setting? Of course, the, these are tough studies to do when you're talking about human patients. And these are the kinds of studies that have then triggered a um, uh, lot of the uh, basic scientists to look at the biology and the mechanisms and so on.
1: So um, I read recently. I think this was a, this was an article published by Harvard where they were saying that um, depression plays a major role in the in the uh, so basically women who are depressed. Um, have a significantly higher percentage of, you know, chance of um, getting diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So, but from what you're saying, in terms of stress, it may not be a direct correlation as much. So uh, it is, so what my question is, is we can separate the depression from the stress and say that even though there is substantiation that uh, depression may cause ovarian cancer diagnosis, but there is no such conclusion that can be made for um, stress. Is that
0: right? So, well, so for, even in that context, see if someone has a, um, a uh, you know, we know that as all of us age, that we continue to accumulate a certain amount of genetic damage, and, and there are people who, um, have what would be subclinical small cancers that may not ever become clinically evident. Now, could chronic stress-related biology or, say, major depression bring out certain cancers where they become clinically evident, whereas in other settings they may, they may not become uh, clinically evident and grow and so on? Possibly... And and that's where, you know, some of the links to to diagnosis may come about. But again, I think just uh, the caution that I bring about there is that we don't know that stress necessarily caused the cancer. It may have shortened the latency to which Somebody developed uh, and had clinical evidence of cancer. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yes, and that that is very good clarification. Thank you so very much. So, um, moving on to my next question, you have a long-term interest in understanding uh, the the causes, the underlying causes of cancer growth and progression. So, can you tell us more about this and what are the uh, underlying reasons, according to you, and how do they impact growth and progression in cancer?
0: Yeah, great, great question. And we try to look at this, you know, in in many different ways and take a a more holistic approach as well. And what I mean by that is that you know we know that for ovarian cancer, most women present with advanced stage disease. So over seventy percent of our patients present with stage three or four cancer, and we know that outcomes of our patients depend on whether they. Um, have a diagnosis um, at an early stage or or advanced stage disease. So understanding the mechanisms of how ovarian cancer grows and spreads, I think is quite important in that regard. Now, you, you know, certain biases get established over time. So over time, over my own lifetime, I've heard statements like, well, brain cancer doesn't really metastasize, it just set, spreads from surface to surface. I've heard other people say that, um, that, you know, the way that this cancer grows can be very different than other cancers. So, you know, in, in my view, I, I think we should constantly keep an open mind and um, try to think about things very differently. Otherwise, we get basically stuck in the, you know, in just promoting the same old thoughts that have been around for quite some time. What I mean by that is that clinically, we know that there are women who present with cancer that's, for example, spread throughout their lymph nodes, um, or that have spread outside of their belly. It could be in the liver, it could be in the lungs, it could be in the chest, and so on. Well, if it got to those places, it couldn't have gone there just from surface to surface. So one of the, um, and, and there are many clinical observations that, that surround this. We've looked at um, uh, clinicians who've done autopsy studies and have reported you know, what are the patterns of growth for ovarian cancer and so on. So based on this, a few years ago, one of our um, uh, trainees looked at, well, can ovarian cancer grow through the blood system? Okay. Simple question. Couldn't really find any compelling data one way or the other. So, and we do know that if we take blood samples in patients with ovarian cancer, well, we can detect cancer cells in the blood um, that, are ovarian, that are ovarian cancer cells. So she found, she did a whole range of very painstaking work over about uh, three and a half years and found that indeed ovarian cancer can spread through the blood system, but it has a strong predilection for spread to the omentum, the fatty apron that comes out um, off of the bowels into the mesentery, which is the blood supply to the bowel. And you know this goes back to uh, observations that have been around for quite some time that cancers don't spread just in a random pattern. They Most cancers spread where they have selectivity, they like to go to certain organs. So, uh, for example, in men with prostate cancer, it likes to go to the bone, it likes to go to certain other uh, organs. For women with breast cancer, there's again uh, organ specificity where it can spread to. For vein cancer, we know that it likes to grow within the abdominal cavity. And in, uh, in other patients, it can go to the lungs and liver and so on. But the route is important to understand. We know that it likes to go to the lymph nodes. So that study is already published where it can go through the blood. Um, And now we're doing a lot of work to try to understand how does it get to the lymph nodes? How does it get to other places? We feel that understanding these kind of um, early steps in metastasis are, are really important for understanding the biology of this disease. And hopefully then also for developing some new therapies as well
1: what you said is so fascinating it's like um it's almost like every cancer has a predefined path that they like to go to so if we can like to your point if we can determine that and with some you know degree of uh confidence then we could potentially come up with some forward looking treatments for for th- to to block those paths i don't know in in layman's terms i'm you know, I'm just thinking aloud, but it's just fascinating what you said, that there is a pattern to how these cancers spread. So the more we know about this, the more we can have a plan to attack even before they get to the second organ, right? So-
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of my uh, mentors, Josh Fiddler, who unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago, you know, he, he, um, uh, he really is the sort of the grandfather of the metastasis field. And he he um, was a strong advocate for understanding biology, because he used to have a saying that understanding biology today will drive the therapies of tomorrow. And it's such a profound statement. It's a simple statement, but it's such a profound statement. And he also came up with a premise that, you know, that metastasis or cancer spread is a is a very step-by-step process. And the reason it's important to understand the process is that if you can disrupt the process, you will block cancer growth and spread to other places. So the way I look at it is that, yes, we know that women with ovarian cancer present with advanced stage disease, but the more we understand the initial events and also what's required for that kind of growth and spread, the more effective uh, we should be uh, in in the future in terms of disrupting the whole cascade,
1: and also in terms of recurrence too. I mean that even though the cancer has already happened, when it comes back, there is a better preparation on our end if we understand the pattern really well. So thank you for Absolutely. sharing your light on that. So. Um, I had this curious question on radiation therapy in ovarian cancer, although it is not very popular, but certain patients and overcomers go through it um, in certain situations and circumstances. So um, what should our overcomers know about the benefits and challenges of radiation therapy in ovarian cancer? What questions should they ask and what side effects should they expect? Um, and just in general, what should they know about the success rates in radiation therapy that you would share with us uh, in terms of ovarian cancer?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, the interest in radiation has been around for quite some time. And MD Anderson actually, um, uh, as an institution, was a pioneer in the initial use of radiation. And so many years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a something called a moving strip technique that was used for treating women with ovarian cancer. And a lot of those uh, were eventually uh, abandoned because of, of several reasons. One is that you couldn't give it, um, you know enough radiation without hurting the liver, the kidneys, and so on, to completely treat ovarian cancer because the, it it spreads. To so many places within within the uh, within the belly. Now, having said that, radiation itself has evolved, and there are a lot of ways to use it. So, radiation we don't use commonly for treating um, patients with ovarian cancer, but where it can be uh, useful is say if somebody develops relapse disease, and you have a high level level of confidence that that cancer spot is located, for example, in the pelvis, and there's nothing else elsewhere through PET imaging or other imaging modalities. In that setting, if you can give radiation safely to try to treat that particular site of tumor without hurting the other organs and so on, radiation can be quite effective. And we've certainly used it in that kind of a selective setting. Another aspect that's really intriguing, but I've, it's not something that, that we can use on a wide basis at this point, but there is some data that radiation at a low dose can actually stimulate um, immune cells in terms of coming into the, into the tumor environment. So for patients with melanoma and certain other tumor types, you know, th- there are people who have combined low-dose radiation with immunotherapy. And uh, Dr. Welsh here at MD Anderson actually has a, a clinical protocol um, where they're combining low dose radiation along with immunotherapy. You know, do I know that it, uh, it works uh, at, at this point? Not quite yet, but these are the kind of, um, of uh, you know, new combinations and, and strategies that are, that are worth considering and developing. Um, and I think in the not too distant future, we should have data on that. So again, radiation has been certainly around, um, and but it's it, it has a place still for treating women with ovarian cancer, but it's a lot more selective.
1: So, is there any um, trial ongoing where ovarian cancer patients are receiving uh, radiation plus immunotherapy, similar to absolutely?
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, that that trial is uh, still ongoing here. And uh, we'll certainly look forward to the uh, to the results out of that and uh, if it holds true as it has in, in certain other cancer types, it'll certainly be a very welcome development
1: absolutely thank you so um, speaking of trials, uh, can you tell us about the most recent trial that you are running at your lab and the goals and that you hope to accomplish from them?
0: Sure sure so, you know, in the lab, we try to focus in, in my whole interest in carrying out research really tends to be driven by uh, learning from the clinical side. And so um, right now, a lot of our uh, therapeutic work is focused on on areas that we identify as a need from the clinic. So some of those are um, that we know that increasingly women are being treated with Bevacizumab or Avastin, um, which is a drug that targets a blood supply. So we have a a, a lot of patients now who've been treated with with that drug. It doesn't work forever. And at some point um, their cancer starts to grow despite treatment. So in the lab, we have um, uh, been studying this for quite a few years, and we've developed model systems where we, Uh, keep treating uh, animal models with with the same kind of a drug. And then we try to understand mechanisms um, that are involved in uh, tumors growing despite treatment. Some of those examples are that, you know, while there are many uh, parts of the immune system that are important for controlling cancer, there are some parts such as macrophages or what are called myeloid cells that can actually stimulate tumor growth. So as tumors adapt or become resistant to these anti-angiogenesis drugs, they become heavily infiltrated by macrophages. So we've developed a, uh, based on our preclinical work, we've developed a clinical trial that Dr. Uh, Weston is leading now, where we use a drug to target the macrophages. We are doing uh, biopsies, uh, both pre and post treatment to try to understand, are we indeed affecting these macrophage um, cells uh, if we use that kind of a drug? Um, There are other things that we've learned from the laboratory in terms of new targets that uh, we will be then bringing into clinical settings. Similarly, we've um, made observations around PARP inhibitors. We know PARP inhibitors are incredibly effective for many patients with ovarian cancer, but not all. And uh, moreover, we need to learn, you know, what are the other drugs that we can combine with PARP inhibitors? What are the mechanisms of resistance and how can we overcome those? So we're studying those in the laboratory setting. And again, have some really neat uh, observations. Some of this work is in collaboration with Dr. Jinsong Lu, who's a pathologist here. And then uh, Dr. Weston um, is um, uh, translating these uh, discoveries into into the clinical setting. Then another area that we're that we feel is critically important is that we know that for women, especially with high grade serous ovarian cancer, immune therapy just doesn't work that well, Um, and it's it's been disappointing, frankly. So we're looking at mechanisms, well, why doesn't it work so well? And how can we help improve um, the, um, the response to immunotherapy? And Dr. Jazieri is helping to lead a lot of the clinical work, uh, but we've built uh, animal models and other work to try to understand mechanisms and then develop combination studies whereby uh, the effects of immune therapy uh, can be improved. So those are some of the areas, that there are certainly other areas as well, but those are some of the important areas
1: those uh, sound very exciting so when do you when do you expect the results to be published from all
0: these? Uh... Oh these are ongoing uh, Lucy. so you know uh, Shannon Weston is presenting some of this in upcoming meetings at SGO at ASCO and so on. Um, uh, this is a is an ongoing iterative process so you know uh, we learn from the lab we learn from the clinic we adapt based on what we've learned and, and so on. Another thing I I should also mention is that I'm part of a steering committee uh, nationally for an adaptive trial, and this is very new. Uh, this will be run through an entity called GCAR. Uh, they've also run a uh, they're also running a uh, such a trial for patients with uh, brain tumors but we're really excited that we got their interest for uh, ovarian cancer. And this is going to be a perpetual trial. So an adaptive trial means that we will um, be able to enroll a control arm on the trial just one time. After that, the, the actual trial arms can open and close as they finish off. And there are enormous benefits to this kind of a clinical trial design because you don't have to keep running control arms time and time again and again, which wastes resources. It continues to expose patients to you know older treatments and so on. And, and so we're really excited about this uh, adaptive clinical trial. Um, and uh, we've already had our initial meeting with the FDA. Um, and the clinical protocol has been written, and then uh, we're continuing to develop this. And our hope is that by later this year, we should be able to uh, to uh, start this trial. It's a really exciting development for uh, for treatment of ovarian cancer.
1: So I'm, I'm going to put this on my notes to check back with you end of this year and see where we are because it sounds really promising. And if you are starting to recruit at the end of the year, we would love to share this information with all our overcomers listening and at that point in time as well. So <clears throat> thank you for mentioning that. So, you know, uh, moving on to, and also kind of staying on the whole uh your uh, research work, um, I know that you're doing the um, you doing some interesting work on the effect of on, on tumor growth, right? So, I was recently reading an article by the University of Toronto where they actually found that individuals who have a, an increased count actually had an increased risk for cancer. They found uh, with the um, association especially strong in colon, lung, ovarian, as well as the uh, stomach cancer. So from your years of experience focusing on this particular um, kind of work, can you please shed some light on this and what should our overcomers know and be aware of the relationship between ovarian cancer and what is the connection that you would like to uh, share with us?
0: Sure, absolutely. I always learn from history, and I also learn from, again, observations. So uh, bear with me, because I just want to tell you a couple of things around this. Absolutely. Observations around blood clots and cancer have been around for over 150 years. Um, And Armand Trousseau was the first one actually to make that observation in the 1860s. So it's been around for some time. When I was a medical student at uh, University of North Carolina, my mentor um, went to give a talk and um, he got off the plane and actually collapsed uh, at the airport and he, he had a pulmonary embolus, uh, which is a blood clot in the lungs. His platelet count was, was just markedly elevated. That was his primary presentation of uh, metastatic colorectal cancer. And he died about a year and a half later Ever since then, you know, it, had, it that that whole event just stayed with me, and it just I always wondered what is it about cancer in platelets? You know, did the platelets call, high platelets causes cancer? Were the platelets simply a byproduct of uh, him having cancer, and, and so on? And just never uh, had a chance to look into it about until about uh, eleven or twelve years ago, when one of our clinical trainees, uh, Becky Stone took this on head on as a project. And we studied it in the context of ovarian cancer because anecdotally, you know, I kept seeing that a lot of my patients would have high platelet counts at their initial presentation. So it was, it was clearly in the back of my mind for quite some, quite some time. So Becky found that almost one third of women with ovarian cancer will present with very high platelets that's a high number. That's among the highest among uh, many, many different cancer types. Moreover, just to kind of distill this into a a, a shorter version, she found that there are tumor derived factors such as interleukin-6. So this particular growth factor was coming out of uh, ovarian cancer and it would stimulate the bone marrow uh, to, to produce high amounts of platelets. So on a daily basis, we produce about 100 billion platelets on a uh, regularly just to maintain our normal platelet counts. So it's a fascinating number because in cancer patients, that number is ramped up almost four to six fold. So uh, just massively ramped up. So that has enormous implications, both as a biomarker and for even therapy purposes and so on. So there was a study many years ago that showed that if you took an individual who just walked off the street and who had a high platelet count, about 38 to 40 out of 100 times for those with high platelet counts, you will find an underlying cancer. That could be uh, a gastrointestinal cancer, that could be ovarian cancer and so on, but the links weren't you know, as well understood. So that that that's what we've been studying for quite some time. Then the study from Toronto that you mentioned again a, a really really uh, nicely done study an important study because it further adds evidence that indeed those with high platelet counts we shouldn't just write it off that um, that it's just a you know a a random event now does will everyone who has a high platelet count have cancer of course not but it should raise enough red flags that it one should look hard for an underlying cancer, such as colon cancer or other epithelial cancers, and of course, ovarian cancer. So it is important in that regard uh, to be aware of that if you see a high platelet count, that don't work, look hard for an underlying cancer.
1: This is this is pretty significant in the sense that, you know, especially for ovarian cancer, where we have nothing yet in terms of screening or, uh, you know, early detection, not early detection, but screening. Um, could this be actually something that our OBGYNs should be more focused on when we do our well-woman exams to look at our blood count a little more closely and perhaps use this as some sort of an indicator like you said it can be still vague and there's no definite answer but it's something versus nothing so we don't need that we don't do that now so should we be talking about it what do you think
0: I, I don't know that i would routinely to start ordering cbc tests i think we would need additional data for that but say if somebody does have a complete blood count and they have a higher platelet count or an increasing platelet count. That, coupled with the kind of beach symptoms that you always talk about, Rincy, right? Very important to understand. So, you know, say if someone's having some degree of symptoms, and on top of that, they have a platelet count or all kinds of uh, you know red flags should be going up to really look hard uh, for an underlying malignancy. Now. You know, again, for platelets, it's not specific for ovarian cancer at all. It's uh, because you can it can be elevated with other cancer types as well. Now, you know, along with the number of platelets, I think there's a lot more to learn. A few years ago, we actually started to look at the what we call the ultrastructure of the platelets. You know, in terms of what the platelets contain, and also we're now starting to look at even other things that, are get, that get packaged into platelets and are starting to, to ask the questions, could they actually be an important marker for diagnosis of ovarian cancer? We simply don't know that for sure at all. It's early. But in my mind, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a compartment of the blood that's easy to access. And if there are changes that are occurring early on in platelets, then we should certainly consider that as a possibility um, uh, as, as we move forward.
1: As you said, especially if it happens in conjunction with all the other beat symptoms that we um, always try to educate our um, newcomers and our audience with, it really is a red flag for, for our doctors, for our physicians, primary care physicians to delve a little deeper into that. So thank you for... Or share all this this conversation is so fascinating moving on to another uh, fascinating uh, thing that you are involved in is i was reading on this organ on it on a chip micro device um and its role on identifying personalized better treatments for particular patients before actually starting the treatment on them. So you are involved in it. So tell us about this forward looking research and what do you hope to accomplish from this?
0: You know, when we look at um, studies in human patients or in, in even in mouse models, they are lengthy and they can take quite some time. And uh, we're limited in terms of how many drugs we can test and how quickly we can test those and so on. So I'm always, interested in looking at model systems that can help us accelerate this whole process. So this work uh, in terms of organ on a chip, it's a collaboration with a investigator at Texas a and uh, Abhishek Jain, and we have published now a couple of studies. And I, I posed a question to him, can we create a device where we can reconstruct the, the, the uh, ovarian tumor microenvironment where we have not just cancer cells, which is what we study in a laboratory typically in in the Petri dishes and so on, but rather can we construct a device where we have not just cancer cells, but we have other components of the microenvironment. Moreover, can we make it even more complicated? Can we create flow within this device and ask questions such as, well, do, how, do platelets get outside of these blood vessels? Can they extravasate into the microenvironment? And what roles can they play? How can we block those processes and so on? So uh, Becky, the, uh, the uh, individual I mentioned who did some of our, uh, our uh, work around platelets initially, she for the first time showed that platelets don't just exist in the blood vessels, but they can leak into the tumor and can actually stimulate tumor growth and so on. She was really the first one to show that. So with, uh, with Dr. Janet, uh, Texas C and m with this device, now I'm really excited that we've been able to create this in a, in a uh, device where we can recapitulate the platelets getting outside of the blood vessels into the tumor microenvironment. Moreover, we can start to study drugs that could potentially block this kind of a process. And we can study this with hundreds of drugs rather than just studying one or two or three drugs in mouse models and then bringing those to trials and so on. So this work is is still relatively early, but I'm excited about it because we can truly study the whole microenvironment rather than um, uh, just cancer cells. And moreover, do it in a dynamic setting where we're not just looking at um, just a snapshot, but rather create. Flow and other uh, changes that occur in a live tumor, and then come up with new treatments and so on.
1: This is so fascinating. Thank you for uh, for sharing all this information. It's, it sounds like, you know, and, and again, I mean, for for this particular research that you're involved in, and when do you? Um, is this an ongoing uh, initiative, or do you see, uh, you know, it, it's finishing sometime with some results being published, or?
0: So we've had a couple of papers published where we made some initial findings, and we actually had some neat findings around statin drugs and their impact on platelets. Mm-hmm. But now we're moving on to you know, scaling this, and, and we're applying for some grants where we can hopefully study hundreds of drugs and, and identify the most leading candidates. Um, the questions that we face are, we can't just drop down platelet counts to really low amounts because then you would have bleeding, so that's a problem. What we need to identify are drugs that can disrupt the platelet tumor interactions so that we can uh, disrupt the effects of platelets on cancer cells but yet still allow the platelets to carry on their normal functions in the human body um, for preventing bleeding and things like that. That's where this kind of a device is going to be so powerful. So I think in the next two to three years, um, we we will scale this up in terms of uh, testing other drugs. And again, we continue to learn from human studies as well. You know, one of my collaborators, who I think you know, Shelly Roger did a really elegant epidemiologic study where she showed that, that uh, and this was the first evidence in in, in uh, ovarian cancer, where she showed that post-diagnosis uh, use of baby aspirin was related to better outcomes of women with ovarian cancer compared to uh, those who were not using baby aspirin. Now, I wanna be careful. This doesn't mean that we should start prescribing baby aspirin for everybody tomorrow. We're not there yet, but. It's encouraging data. and um, moreover, you know, could the effects of baby aspirin be related to platelet effects on cancer? Possibly. Uh, we need to be open to that idea and continue to look for other drug options as well.
1: Absolutely loving this forward-looking conversation. Thank you for sharing all these pearls of wisdom, Dr. Sud. Now, switching here just a little bit uh, from a scientist to also a surgeon and a clinician. So um, what do you see in the treatment and clinical side of ovarian cancer that excites you and keep you motivated? And what are also some of the gaps that you see today on the research that is ongoing and the practice that actually is? how do you propose to bridge the gap and what needs to change or improve in the overall management of ovarian cancer? Many questions into one, but um, I think you would you would do justice to this.
0: You know, first of all, this is just an incredibly dynamic and active and exciting time to be carrying out ovarian cancer research. I think I've shown you some of the data that I track on an annual basis about um, what we call prevalence of ovarian cancer. And that means women who've been treated uh, with ovarian cancer who are either cured or, or who are living with ovarian cancer. And you know, year over year, um, we continue to see that number increase. So that means that the treatments that are coming about are having an impact um, on, on this disease. Moreover, the incidence of ovarian cancer over the last um, almost 20 years continues to go down. So we're seeing an increase in prevalence despite a, a decrease in, in incidence. Now, what are some of the barriers? You know, ovarian cancer is an incredibly complex disease. There, there are close to 50 different subtypes. There are, um, it's, you know, the most common type high-grade serous cancer not may, may not necessarily be driven by mutations per se, but rather by copy number. Um, so there are a lot of complexities. And, the barriers are, you know, the more we can bridge the clinic to the laboratory and to the scientists in a way that, the, that we break down silos, have and, and carry out research in a mutually respectful way, and, and really continue to um, have this kind of an interactive and um, dynamic uh, process of learning from both sides. The better off we'll be. Um, I am really excited about the developments that have taken place. As you know, you, you know we've been um, carrying out the Moonshot project for ovarian cancer for several years now. Really impactful work um, has come out of that, and I think it'll continue to. And I think we should um, also continue to embrace the new technologies, not just because they're a tool, but we have to think about how do we how do we smartly use those to go after this disease. So some examples would be one of our uh, lab members is, is doing some, uh, a lot of work now on something called spatial transcriptomics. That means that we can look at now what the gene activation is within ovarian cancer on almost cell-to-cell basis without destroying the tumor. We can study their geographic location and keep that, uh, that kind of information intact. Boy, three years ago, there's no way we could have have, um, been talking about that. So it's such an active and dynamic time that uh, the the power of the new technologies is just unprecedented. Another area that's that's just fascinating is um, where we can look at metabolism changes and do it in almost real time. So Dr. Nicole Fleming is now doing a study um, where we're looking at, something called a mass spec pen in collaboration with uh, Dr. Livia Eberlin, who's now here at at Baylor. And we're trying to distinguish, you know, what actually contains cancer cells versus normal tissue in patients with ovarian cancer. So that's a new surgical tool that could be quite impactful in terms of distinguishing what's cancer and what's not and so on. And those are just some examples. I, I could go on and on and on, uh, but it's and just- we could uh, go
1: on and, on and on and on listening to you because this is just so positive and so exciting. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. So um, I've asked you a lot of questions, but what have, I, what have I missed? What have I not asked you that you would like to share with us?
0: You know, what I'll share is, is um, actually, I, we indeed have covered a lot. But what I will share is is reflecting back on what you've done and the importance of advocacy. And I think getting the the patient advocates, the survivors, their family members, mobilizing this whole community in a way that it works together and and makes the decision makers uh, nationally listen, I, I think is just incredibly important. Moreover, one other very different point that I'll make is that there are disparities in access to care in how women who come from different backgrounds do with ovarian cancer, Uh, we should pay attention to that. And we should focus also on on how we can overcome those kinds of disparities. And and I know you're a champion of that because you give care packages um, to those who come from disadvantaged backgrounds and so on. But I just wanted to bring up those those two important points.
1: Absolutely. And, and like you said, we have firsthand experience in, in working with these patients. And we understand the majority of ovarian cancer patients are being treated at community hospitals, right? Not at large centers like Anderson or Dana-Farber. So there is disparity. There is a lot of difference between how they are treated and what... Information they're receiving, so it's our job as as you know advocacy organizations to get the message out there, to get experts like you to come and talk to our overcomers about all the fascinating things that you just shared with us. So thank you so very much. So um, in closing, Dr. Sud, my last question: uh, What message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience? You know, I'll
0: I'll, uh, I'll share that that uh, first of all, you know, be an advocate. For yourself. And um, you will never hurt anyone's feelings uh, by getting a second opinion if need be or going, you know, and, and getting the best possible care. Um, it, it, it's really important. And the final message is that even though ovarian cancer remains a deadly disease, and I'm humbled by that on a daily basis, it's it's also a time, though, where there truly is hope, and we can't give up on that. It, that should be a motivating factor to continue to make advances and progress against this deadly disease, and and that what that's what really drives me on a, on a regular basis.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Sue. This was not only a you know a wealth of positive and fantastic information, but your closing your message of overcoming was also very positive and a very you know it just. just showed your radiance so thank you so very much uh, for this fabulous discussion we loved every minute of this coffee chat with you and overcomers hope this was beneficial as i say please share this fabulous information and the great insights dr Sud, just shared with us uh, far and wide with anyone who may benefit so uh, we will be back with the uh, next episode of connector for coffee very soon until then you keep talking about ovarian cancer because as you know together we can overcome. Thank you and bye.
0: Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors GSK and Clovis Oncology and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.